you have a Bible this morning and you want to read along where we're going to take a scripture reading, we'll do so from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. And we'll begin reading in verse 13 and read to the end of the chapter. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I'll conclude our reading this morning. And drawn from these verses, verses 13 through 28, the title of our message this morning is A True Christian. A True Christian. Now, one of the things that Satan has often employed throughout human history and is certainly doing today is that people will often use words, but words evolve in their meaning over time. And so I can use a word, and in my mind there's a certain concept, person, belief that is associated with that. And you use the same word, except the boundaries 
of that word are a little broader to you. And if enough people over enough long a period of time begin to use words a certain way, those words begin to shift in their meaning. And it is the case that it can become so extreme that over a long period of time, a word that meant one thing can end up having an opposite meaning to what it did. But regardless of that, regardless of words, what matters is truth. And that does not change. The word Christian today, unfortunately, is not one that I put a lot of stock in. In other words, when people say, I'm a Christian, that doesn't really mean a lot anymore. The sad reality is the Bible uses the word. We find the origin of the word in the book of Acts when it's describing a group of people in Antioch that were Christ followers. But since then, especially in modern America, it is used for a whole lot of reasons. It's used to describe a political demographic. It's used to describe people who just go to church. It's used to describe a a group of people who might ascribe to certain values. I've heard people say before, you know, he's not a Christian, but he's the best Christian I've ever met. And what they're trying to say is he's a very moral person. He just does not follow the teachings of Jesus. But this morning we want to consider what the Bible reveals to us as a true Christian. What does Jesus mean by being a Christian? And so I think this chapter is one of the most clear and elucidating for us how you become a Christian... And then what entails being a Christian once you have become a Christian? And it begins with this conversation that Jesus initiates, which he often does, Brother Brian, this week, as he was talking about Adam in the garden and how God initiated a conversation with Adam by asking him a question that God already knew the answer to. And here Jesus does the same thing. He comes to his apostles and he asks them this question. What are people saying about me? Who am I to all of these people? Well, at this point, Jesus had been known as this prophet who was different than the religious leaders of the day. There was something unique and special about the way that he taught and what he taught and the miracles that he performed. And so there was this, uh, uh, there was this attention that he was drawing from people and people were curious about who he was. And as his, he displayed more of God's anointing on him, people began to then say, you know, he's like these old prophets from long ago. He's Jeremiah and he's all these various men that it lists here in the text. Now, today, I would ask you the same question that this asks, that Jesus asked his disciples. Who is Jesus? 
Because the world may inform you of a lot of things about who he is. But let, let's ask you who he is. Like there are many people that come to church because it's part of their family culture. Because it's part of the American culture. Because it has been in some sects of our culture uh, integrated as just a part of the American life. And so people come to church and they sing songs of praise like we did earlier for this character, this man named Jesus. And they shake their heads in assent to all the different doctrines. But really they themselves have never deeply considered and answered the question, who is Jesus? And listen, that matters a whole lot. That doesn't just matter a little bit. Like, it's the most important question you could ever ask yourself personally. And here's the point in the message where people begin that don't want to answer the question to distract themselves with other thoughts. But listen, just like it was for Pilate on that faithful day of Jesus' crucifixion, he tried everything he could to get Jesus to go away. Send him to Herod. He he didn't want to deal with Jesus. Let's flog him and then the people will allow me to let him go. But in Pilate's case, it is the same with every human being. Jesus just keeps coming back. And listen, if this is something that's happened to you, rather than defer, why don't you answer the question, who is Jesus? So he asked his apostles this question. Now there were many disciples, the Bible tells us in the book of John chapter 6 at the end, there were many disciples, followers, students of Jesus. And you might say of yourself, that's what and who you are. That you go to church and you participate in the youth groups and you go to VBS and you have this casual observance. And yet many people cling to the form of Christianity and they don't consider the substance of Christianity. But what we're confronting you with today is not the form and the package. It's the substance of Christianity. Who is Jesus? Many disciples in John chapter 6, Jesus gave them a hard saying about him. And it says there that when the hard stuff came out, many of them turned away. And I don't find it strange today at all that that same pattern is in the hearts of human beings today. That very often when we want to talk about the shallow things of Christianity and the observances of your church and the different flavors and interests, people are happy to engage. But when you really begin to get to the heart of the, of the matter of the scriptures, when you really get to the heart of where you stand with an almighty God, where your heart has been, whether you've ever been truly converted, suddenly people try to defer and turn their heads and not consider the heart of Christianity. But listen, Jesus is not a Christian Santa Claus. He's not coming along just to make you happy. Here he puts this question to his disciples. And some of his disciples had gone away when he began to teach them hard things and ask them hard questions. But Peter answers the question. And he answers it perfectly. Perfectly. 
Brother Brian mentioned the other night, he, last night he mentioned this text, and I started to get a little worried because I thought, well, don't go too far. I'm going to be preaching on this tomorrow. Right? And he mentioned that to identify Jesus as the Messiah was blasphemous. And so, Peter's acknowledgement here is beyond something that we can understand here. A few months ago, we had a a missionary come and give us a a talk on a Sunday night from Pakistan. And the one thing that was overwhelming to me is that that small group of Christians in Pakistan who are worshiping God don't go into some hidden little house and and don't sing quiet and, and don't preach with just a whisper. But rather, they put big speakers on the top of their church. And as the gospel goes out, and as the songs go out, it goes to that microphone, and it broadcasts, and that almost in that 99% Muslim country, where you can be taken and imprisoned and beaten and all of those things. And I was just amazed at the boldness of those people, that they had been saved by God's grace, and they were unashamed to declare to the world, even at their own cost, and it makes their testimony and their profession of much higher power in my mind and heart than you and I sitting here within a group of people and in a country that just generally accepts the precepts that we're talking about And here, Peter is surrounded by a culture of Jews who the Messiah was not one that would look like Jesus or come like Jesus or do the things that he would. And so when Jesus asks him this question and Peter responds unashamedly and says, Lord, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It was a powerful profession of his faith in who Jesus was. Peter, or Jesus, responds, and I won't get to everything in the text today because there's a purpose of what I want to say this morning. Here's a really important truth about church that we learn in these next two verses. Listen, church is not a place that you come and you go out into the marketplace of American culture and you shop for your church. Because that's what people do today, is we have this very consumer-like mentality about everything in this free market, and we've translated that to the religious world. And so people come into a church like ours, and they say, you know, if you like a little more traditional, if you like a presentation that's kind of like this, then this is a good place for you. But if you don't like those things, then you need to go to some place that caters to the youth, or that has a more up-tempo and upbeat song service, or that you're allowed to wear more casual clothing. And so people will shop for churches based upon the presentation all the while ignoring the heart of what matters. But here in this text, Jesus reveals the crucial truth about every true church. He said, first, as Peter gives his great confession of I know God, And then Jesus gives him this very important response back. And Peter, I know you. And you're blessed because you don't know God through some antics or through something doctrine or through something that man does. 
Rather, you know God because God the Father has revealed it to you. If you want to know something unique about what our church believes, it is that we believe when a person is truly saved, God himself reveals to them that they are saved. You don't find that in most places, unfortunately, today. Why? Because most places have all the pageantry and lack the substance of knowing God. Here he says, you know me and I know you and you know me because God has revealed me to you. And he says, upon this, this rock is what the church is built on. So listen, this morning we we do something, again, that's historically not different in Baptist churches, but in a contemporary sense it's very unique. Because when somebody wants to become a member of this church, and we look to this scripture and we say, okay, if the bedrock of the church is that every member within it has a personal experience where they came to know God, then it is necessary for every member of the Lord's body to know him. To have a relation with a relationship with them outside of the confines of this church. That God speaks to them. And so this morning, before the end of our service, I intend to open the doors of the church. When I open the doors of the church this morning, if someone were to come forward, they're not getting saved. I'm not going to repeat to them a prayer. I'm not going to coach them about anything. Rather, what's going to happen is that they're going to stand before you and they're going to give a profession of when they came to know God. Because that is the most substantial thing, the the prerequisite to become a member of this body. You don't have to know our doctrine. You don't have to know many things. But you need to know God. And so every person that's a member of this church had to come up here and give a profession of faith where they came to know God. Jesus says here, it's what, it's the rock that it's built on. And so listen to me this morning. A true Christian knows Christ. Number one, a true Christian knows Jesus Christ. What else? Well, this text reveals so much more about a true Christ follower. Because, you know, one of the the profound things about the Bible to always pay attention to is whenever things are written and you see things go from one to another topic, sometimes they're different stories, but sometimes God has placed truths in a certain order because there's something about that order that is meant to tell us an additional truth. Or there's more there. And so here he talks about knowing Christ. And that's what a true Christian is. And then it says that he begins to tell the apostles, these men, that he's going to go into Jerusalem and that he's going to be captured and that he's going to be brutally murdered. And then on the third day in verse 21, it tells us he's going to rise again. Now at this moment, consider the angle of the apostles. Jesus is literally changing the little world that they live in. They have left all and they have followed him. Their lives are entirely different than what they'd ever been. 
And here he's got momentum. And when there is cultural momentum, people that are a part of that group, one of the things that I respected so much here uh, about a year ago when the revival was going on in northern Kentucky at that college was that they were willing when they felt it was appropriate to just put an end to it. They felt like, you know what, the time is up. We're not here to save the whole world. God has revived us. That's a very, very unique thing that people don't usually do. And it gave me all the more reason to think, you know, there was probably something involved with that because normally people want the attention, people want to become cultural icons. But let me ask you this question. What cultural icon has arisen from that movement? Zero. You see, these men had this following with Jesus and he is literally going from town to town and the culture is changing and people's hearts are changing and there's a noticeable, discernible difference in the way that this group of people that were labeled the way these Jews are functioning. And then Jesus says, yeah, but I've got to go to Jerusalem and die and then rise again. Peter has just acknowledged him as God And then rebukes him. Now, that feels familiar to me, doesn't it, to you? I worship him in one moment, and then I question him in the next. That's what Peter does. He says, Lord, no. And then, in this text, it reveals to us what is necessary. Now, listen, once you get saved, you are a Christian. Okay, and that's, that's established and finalized. You're saved and you're a Christian. And no matter what you do from that moment on, and I don't have time to get into the depth of eternal security, but from that moment on, you are safe and secure. Your identity is changed within. But on the outside, a true Christian is not just called for one moment to salvation, but we're called to then follow him. So here's what I'll tell you about the denomination of people that we often worship with Missionary Baptist. At times, we can put so much emphasis on the first that we neglect the second. But how will you know somebody's a Christian? Well, the Bible says by their fruit, you'll know them. What is their fruit? It's not simply morality. It's not simply they don't cheat on their wife or cheat on their taxes or do good things and open doors for older ladies. That's not what a Christian, because there are many religions in the world that will ascribe to moral platitudes and perform those things. But a Christian is someone who follows Jesus Christ wherever he might lead. And here's where it tells us that it led for him And then he goes on to say where it's going to lead for us. You see, Jesus came into this world and he had a purpose. And that purpose was to redeem mankind, to pay the penalty of sin, to conquer death, that we might be able to be saved. And that life, like anything in life, when you walk and you drudge through this sinful world, this sinful world is full of swamps. This sinful world is full of hardship and pain and suffering. And especially if your affections and your purpose is centered on accomplishing something difficult, listen, you're going to have a hard road in this life. And Jesus had a hard road. 
and everywhere he went and everything he did, people did not understand why he was here and what he was doing. And what makes you think that our lot as his followers are any less? Is the servant above his Lord? No, we walked behind our Lord. And he walked up Golgotha's hill. And so that's what it tells us. It begins to outline for us what the life of a Christian is going to be like. But we're not just going to stop here because there's a next chapter. We'll get to that in just a moment. It says this. Listen to this. Peter rebukes the Lord. And he says, Lord, no. And Peter, or Jesus rather, says this. Get behind me, Satan. Ooh. Blistering, don't you think? Well, kind of. Because imagine if Jesus had followed the instruction and rebuke of Peter. What if he would have avoided the cross? What if he would have avoided all the things that beset him in Jerusalem? Well, I can say with great confidence, you and I would not be here this morning. And nobody would be able to give a great profession like the Apostle Peter did earlier. You see, the cross was necessary. And when somebody tried to step in the way of Christ accomplishing his divine purpose... It was nothing short of satanic. Get behind me. Why? Because you're not valuing God's things. You're valuing men's things. Now listen to me. There are two ways of looking at the world. There's through our carnal, natural, short-sighted, imperfect, temporary, finite eyes. Whereby we see through this lens those things and we see and analyze those imperfectly. Or they're seeing things the way they are, the way God sees them. And God has this capacity to reveal to the human heart how things truly are from his vantage point. And here, Peter is rebuked because he is seeing things strictly the way the world sees them, not the way God sees them. You may think what we do here is foolish. You may think I get loud and scream for no reason. You may think that there's passion around here and it's strange. You may see the songs we sing are weird. But listen, are you saying all those things from the vantage point of your flesh? Or from the heart of someone having had revealed to them how God sees it? He begins to tell him these hard truths about following Jesus. If any man will come after me, Let him deny himself. Spend weeks talking about that, couldn't we? Couldn't the human heart this morning from all of us confess how difficult it is to deny self? Worldly ambition is so real in the heart of man. Your ambition no doubt looks different than mine and mine looks different than yours. And yet, inextricably interwoven within each person's is self. I want what I want. And listen to me. A true Christian must deny himself. If you are going to be a Christ follower, 
and take on that title. Not that you've just been saved, but I am a follower of Jesus. It begins with denying self. And then it says this, taking up our cross. One of the things to love about our Lord is that he never calls us to do anything that he himself has not done and far surpassed in his own doing. Jesus bore a cross. That cross was heavier. That cross required more suffering than what yours and I, our cross, ever will. To be a Christ follower, a Christian, a true Christian, picks up their cross. In another place it says they do it daily. And then it says they follow him. And it tells us in the next verse how that happens. It tells us the only way that you can do verse 24 is by doing verse 25, which is this. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. You see, what is often lost in the Christian life is that people think that what we do is we we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we step drudgingly through this life that there's no joy, that there's no happiness, that you have to forsake all the pleasures of this life. But listen to me this morning. When you follow Christ as Jesus is prescribing here, Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms, it is only through this path that you will find real life. How many people wake up today and the next thing they know, they're 50 or 60 years old and all of their ambitions have fled from them or they have tasted and seen all the things that they strove for only to recognize that those things mean nothing. I'm afraid we're indoctrinating a group of young kids with this mentality that you go and live your Disney dream and you find your Disney prince or princess, and you try to conquer whatever kingdom, whatever enemy is before you, and then once you do, you ride off into the sunset, and you're happily ever after. And listen to me, that is not the case. That's selling to you a lie. The truth of the matter is that God has a divine purpose for your life here and now. And that first, you must know him. And then you must lay everything down to follow him. Young men today are tempted by pretty girls. And they imagine their life when they're 18, 20, 22, 25, 30 years, whatever they do to get married. And in that moment they see, you know, that's my bride and... They think of all these short-lived, temporary pleasures that their similar interests and the beauty of that girl could grant to them the rest of their life. But let me tell you something. When you, when you get past the honeymoon phase and you begin to recognize that your interests will change as you go throughout your life, then let me ask this question. What will knit you together? What will cause you to learn what true love, having been immersed in 60 years of sacrifice and commitment, does the world know what that's like? Because there's a richness in that that Disney cannot portray. 
No, what you do is when you both know Jesus, and you both just you don't you're not satisfied with just knowing. Like I don't want my wife to just be saved. That's not enough for me. I want to see in her that she is willing to deny herself, take up her cross, and follow him. And when I saw a girl like that, that God said, this is the life for you. And listen, I don't want somebody to be fully dependent on me for their spiritual life. She too has a commitment to Christ that she has to follow. And at times, she comes in and she helps me carry my cross. And at times, I go and I help her carry her cross. You see, God, whenever you yield to him, can bring you a spouse that not just has common interests, but there's something in the depths of your heart that has a kinship that the world sensationalizing cannot explain. Tells us, what will it profit you if you gain it all and lose yourself? The words in the in the English, but you do in the Greek, I think, because there's this expression that he's trying to give. Because he's talking about saving your life and losing it, losing your life, and then finding it. So he's saying this, if you go and you find all the world and it's all yours, but you have lost you, what value is all that stuff to you? But if you find or God finds you and you find God, you're enriched Beyond measure. See, a true Christian has a time and a place where God has saved them and they became one of his. A true Christian is someone who follows at the footsteps of Jesus wherever it leads. And then let me get to the good part. The chapter in our translation ends... But in the original, it just keeps going. There's no verses and chapters. It just keeps writing. So then it says to the same man, Peter, that Peter, James, and John, we talked about it two nights ago. Peter, James, and John are taken by Jesus up to a mountain. And let me tell you, if you want to have a draw to become a true Christian, here's one of the reasons is because what the world will do, if you're cool enough, if you're talented enough, or if you can pay enough, then you'll be uh, able to experience certain treasured, unique experiences that only people who can pay for it can have. So if you're wealthy enough and you go to Disney World, you can pay for all these little intricate bonuses that go along with the experience. But did you know that God offers to all men this opportunity to be with him in a way that the world cannot know? 
You see, in the next chapter, it begins with the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. If you're not saved this morning or you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm just going to tell you from the very start, I'm going to have a hard time explaining this. In the Christian life, very often, we preach, we pray, we evangelize, we do our best to love our spouses and our children and put in our lives the teachings of Jesus Christ. And very often, it feels like a cross. It just does. At times, it's really hard for you men to go and provide because you've been staring at the same boss and you've been listening to the same rules, and, but God has commissioned you to provide. It's very hard sometimes when your children are difficult to just be patient and kind and show love and love and love. It's very difficult for a world that rejects the gospel to go out into this world as ambassadors for Christ and attempt to reach those people being rejected as Jesus would time and time and time again. It's difficult to come to church on days like this. Day 10, everyone's exhausted, everyone's tired, everyone's ready for a break and rest. You see, sometimes when we walk through this wilderness. We're carrying a cross. But there are times where Jesus calls us aside. And he lets us go up to the mountain. That's what he did. Matthew 17. He said, Peter, James, John, why don't you come up here? And they went up to the mountain And they got to see and experience Jesus in a way that nobody up to this point had ever experienced and seen Jesus. And listen to me today, that offer is still available today for us. For that Christian that will surrender their heart and come to know God and then take up their cross and follow him. Listen, on the other side of the cross is a resurrection. And yet it is necessary to carry the cross and to be crucified on it before we can experience the resurrection. And there have been times in my own life where I have carried that cross and borne it and it's heavy and I'm stumbling and like Jesus, I fall and everything in me says, quit, give it up, stop praying, stop caring, stop doing the things that God has called you to do and all the temptations of Satan are whispered in my ears and all the discouragement that my heart can convince myself of and it seems like in the valley of struggle and humiliation at the valley when I have extinguished all of my efforts that Jesus calls me up to the mountain and says, come and be with me. And unexplainably, unexplainably, in the heart of pain and discouragement, 
I get to spend time with God alone. And he shows me things I've never seen in my whole life before. And please hear me today. When that is the case, the world stops on its axis. I mean, really. I don't know what I could do to convince you of that, but man, the world stops on its axis. And all that matters in this whole world, all that matters is being with God in that moment and seeing what He alone can reveal. I've told you before, when I'm sensible in that moment of what's going on and I can feel the presence of God in my heart and in my life so palpably as I'm about to leave that place, I'll whisper over and over, Lord, don't leave yet. I don't want to come down from the mountain yet. Please, from this being with you, change me. Please, Lord, when I get in the depth of the valley, please remind me what this is like. Lord, please let me come back here again. What I'm trying to tell you, friend, is that there is a depth to the Christian life that this shallow Americanized version of Christianity has no knowledge of whatsoever. Why would you want to be a Christian if all it was about is being a part of a club that does fun activities and talks about some character from long, long ago? But what if you find a relationship with Christ and then you find a responsibility, a divine, eternal responsibility, the effects of which and the outcome of which you following will have eternal ramifications. And then throughout it, you get to see and experience things that nobody in the world can, not from some elite that you pay, but from God himself. Give me a wish in this life. Give me three wishes in this life, I guess. The old genie rubbing the lamp. I'd have everybody be saved. Then I'd have everybody follow him. And then I'd have it that just every person in this world could experience at least once in their life being taken to the Mount of Transfiguration. Because if God did those three things, you wouldn't turn back from following him. You know, that's the thing from this point on. Peter, James, and John, they went to some rough, rough, dicey times, didn't they? I mean, it's not like they didn't come down from the mountain and they just kept riding mountain peak to mountain peak. No, it basically, for the remainder of their life, stayed a valley quite a bit, and then they'd go up to a mountain and go back to a long, dry-boned valley. But you know what sustained them? They'd seen enough. They knew enough. And now, do you know what they're experiencing? They live on the mountain. But it's a lot higher than the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus was not changed for a moment. He's in his likeness that he'll be forever. This morning, I want to invite you to follow Jesus. You've been saved by God's grace this morning truly born again. We're going to ask you to relate that to us today.
when you come forward to join the church, I want you to recognize with your full eyes open, you are committing your life. Your soul is already his. Now you're professing, I'm going to follow Jesus. Jesus.